0: as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode.
1: Chapter 2 of King and Baronage, A.D. 1135-1327 to 1327 by William Holden Hutton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2. The Reign of Henry II. 1154-1189. Besides its anarchy and bloodshed, the first feature that strikes us about the reign of King Stephen is the strength of the Church. This strength was due to the weakness of all other powers in the state. There was no administration and no justice. The rivals for the throne could not establish their power, and the barons could only fight for their independence. Thus men looked to the church for guidance. It was Henry of Winchester who first held the balance between the parties, and then gave to Stephen's side what strength it acquired. It was Theobald, Archbishop of Canterbury, who more than any other man mediated peace between Stephen and Henry And so gave England a time of rest, and then a strong ruler. While all was in confusion elsewhere, the church courts still were in working, and their men could get justice when they could find it nowhere else. Thus, gradually many suits which belonged naturally to the state came to be tried in church courts, and when Henry II came to the throne, he found that the lay courts needed to be restored from the foundation. Church councils, too, had chosen between the claimants to the throne, and each in turn had submitted to legate and bishops and clergy. Nor was the church's power to be seen only in politics and law. The reign of Stephen was a period of revival in the religious life. During those nineteen years of strife, more monasteries were built than in any other period of the same length. The northern shires which had lain waste since the great harrying by William the Conqueror were now recolonized by bodies of hardy ascetics, who chose out the desolate parts and made them the homes of agriculture and industry. Twenty houses were built in Yorkshire, nineteen in Lincolnshire, and many more in the eastern and southern shires, while Stephen was king. In them the stern rule which Henry of Winchester favored— and which the great saint bernard had done so much to revive was observed the chief houses were of the cistercian order which had been founded by an englishman stephen harding a new order too was in this reign founded in england itself by an englishman gilbert of sempringen which admitted both sexes to separate houses and which began the teaching and training of women thus while the barons castles were in building there arose, too, says the chronicler, God's castles, in which there watch the servants of the true anointed king, and where the young are exercised in war against spiritual wickedness. The church then had spiritual as well as material powers, and the church was the strongest estate with which Henry of Anjou had to deal, but first he must turn to the most pressing needs of his people. Henry II was born at Le Mans, on March 5, 1133. He had much of the spirit of his Angevin forefathers. He was passionate and hasty, cunning and relentless, licentious and faithless. But still he was a wise man and in many ways a good if stern king. He loved justice in others, though he did not always do it himself. He knew law and statecraft as few of his time knew them he saw what the land needed and he knew how to give it with all his faults he was for his day a merciful man and above all he was a hard and constant worker henry was crowned on december 19th 1154 when he was not yet 21 from his earliest years he had learned how to fight for himself and to snatch at every advantage in 1151 Louis, the king of the French, had divorced his wife Eleanor, who was the Duchess of Aquitaine, and possessor of nearly all the lands that lay between the Loire and the Pyrenees. Henry at once married her, and thus, when he obtained the English crown, held a far larger part of France than did Louis its king. In the year of his marriage, his father died. Thus, in 1154, Henry found himself king of the English, with an overlordship of Wales and Scotland, duke of Normandy, count of Anjou and of Maine and Turenne, and in the south, count of Poitou and duke of Aquitaine, a title which, under different rights, gave sway over lands extending from the Creuse to the Adour and from Lyon to the Bay of Biscay. England, under his rule, was part of a great continental empire. Henry's father, Geoffrey, had been called Plantagenet, because he used to wear a sprig of broom, Plantagenista, in his cap, and the name has been given to his descendants, who were so long in direct line, to give kings to the English. Henry lost no time in setting about the work to which he was called. In the charter he issued at his coronation, he made no mention of Stephen. He professed from the first to be the heir of Henry I, and to intend the restoration of the firm government that his grandfather had set up. His accession was welcomed by the people and their chroniclers as the beginning of a new age of peace and justice. First he gave peace by removing the causes of war. He drove out all the foreign mercenaries who under Stephen had vexed the land with their manifold cruelties. He forced all those who held crown lands or had seized royal towns to yield them up to him, and he made no account of the grants which Stephen, in recklessness or in fear, had lavished away. He restored the coinage to its proper weight. He set the law courts to work anew, and himself assisted at their sittings. Again, sheriffs were appointed to do justice and collect dues in the counties. Again, justices were sent round to hear cases in the shire courts. And now, at length, a harsh law of the conquerors was removed. And by his grand assize, Henry II ordered that suits concerning land should be decided not by wager of battle, but by the inquest of twelve sworn freeholders who could witness to the facts. Henry was as fortunate abroad as at home. His brother Geoffrey, who withstood him in Anjou, soon submitted, and the King of Scots did homage and yielded up the earldoms of Northumberland and Cumberland. He was able to obtain the help of men who had learnt how to govern in the school of Henry I, and of others whom Archbishop Theobald had trained to be learned clerks and men of business. Chief among these was Thomas Becket, Archdeacon of Canterbury, who was in 1154 appointed to the office of Chancellor, head of the king's clerks or secretaries, a dignity reckoned second after the king in all his realms. Robert, Earl of Leicester, was given the high office of justiciar, but soon the chancellor was found to be the king's real adviser and chief friend. Thomas Becket was the son of a Norman merchant who had settled in London and been Port Reeve of the city. He had himself been trained in a knightly household and also in a business office, and had studied in Paris and Bologna. He was learned in church law and he had also a good knowledge of practical affairs. Henry soon saw his great ability. He admired his pure and unsullied life, and the two became friends and fellow workers. When business was over, writes William Fitzstephen, Becket's friend, who stayed with him to the last hour in the cathedral at Canterbury, they would play together like boys of an age, in hall, in church, they sat together, or together they rode out. Sometimes the king rode on horseback into the hall where the chancellor sat at meat. Sometimes he came bow in hand returning from hunting or on his way to the chase. Sometimes he would drink and depart when he had seen the chancellor. Sometimes jumping over the table he would sit down and eat with him. Never in Christian times were two men more of a mind or better friends. Thomas was at the king's side when he began his great legal reforms. He was sent, too, on an embassy to Paris to arrange a marriage between King Louis's daughter Margaret and Henry's eldest boy. Through this there was peace for a while between England and France, but in 1159 Henry claimed Toulouse in right of his wife, and this led to a new war. Here Becket served in the field with seven hundred knights and himself did bold deeds. During this war, Henry made his barons pay a scutage, or tax on shields, instead of serving themselves with their retainers, thus freeing himself from the untrained feudal soldiery, who were often a danger rather than a help, and using mercenary troops instead. The struggle was not brought to any conclusion because when King Louis opposed him, Henry would not fight against the lord of whom he held feudally his lands in France on November 2nd, 1160, Henry married his son to the little Margaret and took possession of the Vexin, a district on the Norman border which had been named for her dowry. Louis had never intended that the wedding should take place while his daughter was still a child, and bitterly resented the trick by which he was made to lose the land so early. War broke out and continued fitfully for many years, though the two kings, in spite of their quarrels and fightings, agreed in recognizing Alexander III as Pope when the emperor supported another claimant who called himself Victor IV. Thus Henry was constantly engaged in foreign complications. Before long he was to have troubles in England as well. When Theobald, Archbishop of Canterbury, died, it seemed to the king that he could have no better successor than one who would act harmoniously with the crown in the work of church and state. Accordingly, on May twenty-fourth, 1162, Thomas Becket was elected archbishop. He was then only a deacon, though he held much church preferment. On the Saturday after which Sunday he was ordained priest, and next day was consecrated archbishop. The Festival of Trinity Sunday was instituted by the new archbishop. It has ever since been observed in England on that day, and before long spread to the church abroad. But it was soon seen that Thomas could no longer work with the king as he had done. He resigned the chancellorship and devoted himself to the work of his diocese, reclaiming the property of his see, ministering to the poor and sick, and purifying the church wherever he could. He began to work as an ecclesiastical reformer. Unfortunately, the king desired to work on different lines. It seemed to Henry that the time had come to reduce the power of the church. He soon found that he must first break the power of the archbishop. The two strong men first came into conflict at the council at Woodstock on July 1, 1163. The Dane Geld, first levied by Ethelred the Redless as a bribe to keep off the Danes, had since the Norman conquest been collected by the sheriffs for the defence of the shires. Henry demanded that the whole sum collected should be paid direct into the royal treasury. Beckett resisted this as an unjust exaction, and the king was forced for the time to yield. The strife then turned to the main question at issue between church and state, the extent of the immunities of the clergy. In a council held at Westminster in October 1163, Henry claimed that all clergymen, the title included those in minor orders, and those who held many offices, which were not strictly clerical at all, when accused of crime, should first appear in the king's court, then be sent for trial to the church court, and if there are convicted and degraded from their orders, should be finally sentenced in the lay court. This seemed to the advocates of church privilege to be giving two punishments for a single offense, yet there were not wanting church lawyers and bishops who took the king's side. But the archbishop resisted, and the pope supported him. In January 1164, a great council met at the royal manor of Clarendon, near Salisbury. To this, Henry presented what he declared to be the customs of his grandfather Henry I. By these it was decreed that all clerks should answer in the king's court for civil offenses, and that the church should not protect them after conviction, that trials concerning the lands and the patronage of the church should be heard in the king's court, that no one might carry an appeal out of England, that is, to Rome, or leave the country without the king's leave, that none of his tenants should be excommunicated by the church courts without his permission, that bishops were to be chosen in the king's chapel and by his consent, and were to hold their lands as baronies, and attend the king's courts as the other barons did, and that serfs, might not be ordained without their lord's consent. To these famous Constitutions of Clarendon, Becket refused to consent. Nine months passed without either yielding, and then the king resolved to crush the archbishop. In a council at Northampton, he caused Becket to be accused concerning many new matters not relating to church privilege. It was said that he had denied justice to John the Marshal of the Treasury, and that he owed the king a large sum of money. The barons gave sentence against him, and with indignant protests and appeals to the Pope to do him justice, Thomas fled from the kingdom and sought refuge in France. There he stayed for six years, first at Pontigny, and then, when the Cistercians were threatened with Henry's wrath if they continued to shelter him, at Sens in the territory of King Louis. During these years, Henry used every measure to terrify and wound him. The pope, who was in great difficulties between the emperor and the northern sovereigns, alternately supported and abandoned him, and Louis alone stood his firm friend. All attempts at pacification were fruitless till Henry made a great mistake. Following the example of the kings of the French— who to make their dynasty secure had been wont to cause their heirs to be crowned during their own lifetime, Henry had his eldest son and namesake, elected king, and crowned by Roger, Archbishop of York, Becket's lifelong foe. Now the Archbishops of Canterbury had always held it their right to crown kings, and the Pope supported Becket in his vigorous protests and excommunications it seemed as if henry the second himself would be laid under curse and so at last he yielded at freteval on july 20th 1170 the old friends met and made peace henry agreed to withdraw the constitutions and thomas made haste to return to canterbury but there was no full peace yet for the bishops who had been beckett's foes refused to submit to his rule or to take the oath to obey the pope's decision which he required of them before he would absolve them from their excommunication. Those who had seized his property during his absence still held out against him. The bishops with Roger of York at their head crossed the sea to complain to the king, and wrung from him the hasty words, I have nourished knaves that suffer me to be thus tricked by a low clerk. There were those who heard and were only too ready to avenge themselves and others on the archbishop. Reginald Fitzurse, William of Tracy, Hugh of Morville, and Richard de Breton came at once to England and on december twenty ninth eleven seventy murdered Becket in his own cathedral. He died boldly as he had lived. The knights demanded that he should absolve the bishops and leave the kingdom. The Archbishop replied that the first by church law he could not do, and the second he would not. He would die among his own people. He went to the cathedral for vespers, and would not have the doors closed. The four knights followed, and the monks around him fled, save three only his nearest friends. Again the knights demanded that he should do their bidding, and threatened him with death if he refused. "'I am ready to die for my lord,' he answered, "'that in my blood the church may obtain peace and freedom. But in God's name I command you not to hurt my people, clerk or lay." A few more sharp words, and the knight struck him to the ground. As he lay, he commended his soul to God, and a third wound slew him. With his death, the cause for which he fought was won. Miracles were believed to be wrought at his tomb. The people reverenced him as a martyr. It was impossible even for the strong King Henry to resist the overwhelming force of the popular horror. He himself, too, felt remorse and pity. For three days he would not eat or drink, and kept himself apart. Then he came forth, prepared to undergo any humiliation and to make any concession that might be necessary to re-establish his own position as supreme ruler of his lands. The Pope required that he should wholly abandon the constitutions and should make restitution to all whom he had wronged. The King complied and received the papal absolution. Thus, in May 1172, Henry was at length free from the danger and trouble that arose from his strife with the great churchmen. The year of the quarrel with Becket had seen also many other important events. First, Henry had tried to establish his power over Wales. In 1157, in 1162, and again in 1165, he had made expeditions into Wales, each of them unsuccessful. In the first, Henry of Essex threw down the royal standard and fled, and the royal army followed in confusion. Henry's chief opponent was Rhys op Griffith, a prince of South Wales, who was joined at times by Owen Gwynedd of the North. The Welsh princes took every occasion to harass the English king, and he was utterly unable to conquer them. Later in his reign, however, he made an alliance, which kept them at peace, and Welsh soldiers served in his armies abroad. More important and more successful was the first expedition to Ireland. For long the Emerald Isle had been isolated from intercourse with England and with Europe. In early days she had stood foremost among Christian nations, and her missionaries had worked for the conversion of Britain and Caledonia, Germany and Gaul. But the fierce attacks of the Norsemen had wrought terrible havoc in Ireland, from the ninth century there were settlements of the Ostman, as they were called, at Limerick, Cork, Waterford, and Dublin, and from these stations aid was given to the Danish invaders of England. But the Northmen never formed one nation with the Irish. They remained entirely shut off from the Celtic kingdoms of Ulster and Connacht, Leinster and Munster, which still went on their primitive and patriarchal society under the nominal rule of one Arik, Or chief monarch, who claimed to be descended from an early hero king. The northern settlements thus did active harm to Ireland. They destroyed much of the older civilization and crushed out the hope of a strong national life. With England, the Irish Ostman kept some slight connection, and they even at times made some form of submission. Edgar coined money in Dublin, and the Irish coast towns carried on a brisk trade with the English seaports of the West. From England the Irish chieftains bought slaves, who continued to be kidnapped in Bristol, in spite of all that William the Conqueror and Lanfranc, and the good Bishop Wolfston of Worcester, could do to check the practice. The time had now come to bring England and Ireland more closely together william the conqueror had intended an attack upon that country and in church matters at least some subjection to england had been recognized by the irish chieftains and by the irish bishops william and lanfranc had been to some extent known and obeyed in ireland henry was determined to make this subjection real soon after his accession he obtained from pope adrian the fourth the only englishman who has ever been bishop of rome a bull granting him by a power which the popes claimed over all islands to have Ireland for himself, in order to subject its people to the rule of law and to root out therefrom the weeds of vice. It was not till 1170 that Henry took advantage of this grant. In 1166, Dermot, king of Leinster, came to him for aid against other Irish princes who had expelled him from his realm. Henry allowed Richard of Clare, Earl of Striegill, or Pembroke, to assist him. First there went Morris Fitzgerald and Robert Fitzstephen, who established themselves at Wexford. Then came Earl Richard, who took Waterford. Thence they marched to Dublin and took it. From all these towns they had driven the Norwegian Ostman who ruled there. The attacks of the Northmen and the Irish failed to dislodge the invaders, and the Anglo-Norman knights soon held sway over Meath and South Munster, as well as the seaports. Henry himself crossed to Ireland after the murder of Becket and kept Christmas, 1171, at Dublin, when all the Irish kings, save those of Ulster, submitted to him. The Irish bishops, who had long warned their people against the slave trade with Bristol, by which many English folk were brought into captivity in Ireland, and who regarded the invasion as a punishment for the people's sins, accepted Henry, and at a synod at Cashel, at which he was present, agreed to many wise measures of reform and to bring their church into conformity with the English. Henry returned to England in April 1172. Earl Richard now ruled in Ireland, and Hugh de Lacy was the king's justiciar. In 1185 the king sent over his youngest son John, whom he wished to make lord of Ireland, but the prince's rash folly prevented the plan from being successful. At the end of Henry's reign, Ulster had been conquered, and the English pale or boundary included Meath, Leinster, and part of Munster. English nobles settled and English law was established, but the immigrants soon became as wild as the natives, and for centuries there was nothing but confusion and continual war. The conquest of Ireland is, however, interesting, as showing the energy and daring of Henry and his men, and the width of their schemes. English and Norman bishops went to Ireland, and many adventurous spirits sought there for excitement and experience in war. The earlier conquerors were mostly men of South Wales." barons who had settled in pembrokeshire and glamorgan since the norman conquest but could not drive the welsh from their inaccessible mountains among them was a the famous writer gerald of berry who wrote two books about ireland he spent a long life in asserting the independence of the welsh church from the see of canterbury and was three times chosen bishop of saint david's but the english kings would not allow him to take a post where he might have been dangerous In his Conquest and Topography of Ireland, he draws an extraordinary picture of the savage races who then inhabited the island. They were fierce and utterly uncivilized, living only on the produce of their beasts and living like beasts themselves. They had no agriculture and no manufactures, but excelled in poetry and music. They were brave soldiers, but untrained and utterly merciless. It seemed to him that the North Irish greatly differed from the men of the South. The former were warlike and proud, the latter subtle and treacherous. But never, he thought, would either be conquered, till all on this side Shannon was strongly fortified with castles, and the English army was light-armed like the Irish predatory bands. So Henry dealt with Ireland and Wales. He had also to fight with the Scots, In 1173 William the Lion, King of Scotland, agreed with the English king's enemies, and in the spring of 1174 he invaded England with a savage army which committed barbarous outrages in the northern shires. Henry was himself hard set in France and could scarce hold his own. Again the officials and folk of the north stood firm against attack. The king's justiciar, ran off of Glanville, and the sheriffs and bailiffs of the north called together the Ferd, and met the Scots at Annock. There, by a happy stratagem, they took William prisoner. Henry did not lose the opportunity of bringing Scotland under his overlordship. Already early in his reign he had taken back Northumberland and Cumberland, which the Scots kings had held as fiefs from the English crown. Now he made Scotland itself a fief, On August 10, 1175 at York, William the Lion, his brother Earl David, and all his barons and free tenants did homage to Henry II, and the bishops swore obedience to the English Church. Attempts were made by the Pope's aid to shake off this last subjection, but otherwise Henry kept a firm hold over Scotland till his own death. Meanwhile, the great work of Henry's reign had been going steadily on, He had begun his reforms in the law while Becket was still his Chancellor. He did not interrupt them, even amid the danger and stress of his long quarrel with the Church. In 1166 he issued the great act by which he set the law again in thorough working order and provided for its just execution with many excellent reforms. By this assize of Clarendon he restored the old jury of presentment. Much the same as our modern grand jury— by which criminals were to be accused to the king's justices, who were ordered to go from shire to shire at stated times to hear all important cases in the county courts. Circuits were now settled, according to which the judges moved, so that all parts except the great Palatine earldoms of Durham and Chester, which had their own judges, should be visited. The barons, who had courts of their own, were not allowed to judge uncontrolled by the king's justices, and the sheriffs were ordered to see that everywhere the frank pledge, the institution of mutual responsibility for keeping the peace, was maintained. The jury, too, as in the grand assize, was ordered to be used for the trial of many matters which before had been settled by ordeal or wager of battle. This assize was the most important law of the reign, for it organized a system of jurisdiction for the whole land such as had never been known before, and at the same time provided for its enforcement through officials who were all immediately answerable to the king. The effect of the new rule was certainly to make justice more even and more strict, but at the same time it considerably increased the power of the sheriffs and their opportunities for raising large sums from the people. Complaints rose on every side of the severity and of the peculation of the king's officers, and in 1170 he held an inquest of sheriffs by which, after removing all the sheriffs from office, he directed that special judges should inquire into all charges by the oath of those who knew the facts the sheriffs appear to have been acquitted, but they were not restored to their posts. Instead of employing barons who had great power in the districts where they lived, Henry now appointed officers of his own, who both as itinerant justices and as financial officers had the fullest opportunities for knowing the law and of understanding the king's will. By such measures as these, the king was prepared to resist the great storm which fell upon him, not long after Becket's murder. As soon as the barons had come to see that these new laws and this firm system of government, responsible everywhere to the crown, meant that their power and the independence they so cherished were being rapidly taken from them, they concerted measures for a bold stand against the growing supremacy of the king. Henry was far from popular at the moment. Men never forgot the murder of St. Thomas, whom the Londoners especially reverenced as a townsman of their own, whom the Pope had canonized and whom the people everywhere regarded as a champion of liberty and religion. They felt, too, the iron grip of the King everywhere. He was constantly traveling among them, exacting his dues and enduring no opposition or trickery, stern in his enforcement of the harsh forest laws, bitter and passionate in his anger." the church thought him a grasping tyrant. The people felt as yet rather the harshness than the justice of his measures, and the barons were determined to shake off the yoke that he had laid upon their necks. And in all this, his worst foes were those of his own household. His wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, the great princess whom he had married but ill-treated, urged her sons to rebel. Henry the eldest, Whose coronation had cost his father so much, found himself a king only in name. Richard II, chafed under his father's rule and found no work to satisfy his ambition. Geoffrey III had been married to the heiress of Brittany, but only to find that the king used the marriage merely to bring his wife's land under his own sway. And all three resented the provision which Henry would make for his youngest and best beloved, John. Early in 1173 the plot was ripe. The three sons fled to the French king. Their mother, who sought to follow them in man's dress, was stopped and cast into prison. Louis Seventh gladly assisted the rebels. With them joined the king of Scots, the counts of Flanders, Boulogne, and Blois, and many other great lords who owed a grudge to the English king or the Angevin house. Revolt broke out in April in Normandy, Anjou, Aquitaine and Brittany, and before long in England also. Henry showed all the energy and courage of his masterful nature. He fought in turn the French king and the foreign rebels and conquered everywhere. Still the invaders pressed on to Rouen when Henry was called to England by the invasion of the Scots. The English barons, meanwhile, had broken out in insurrection. The Earl of Leicester and his bold wife were ravaging East Anglia, till the justiciar, Richard de Lucy, and the constable, Humphrey de Boone, met them, and a sharp fight took place on October sixteenth, 1173, at Fornham, near Bury St. Edmunds, in which the rebels were routed. But the revolt was not crushed. Hugh God, Earl of Norfolk, The Earl Ferrers and Roger of Mowbray still fought, and the Earl of Leicester's followers held out. Gradually the king's men conquered. Henry crossed to England and did penance, July 12, 1174, at the shrine of St. Thomas the Martyr, and at that very hour men said the king of Scots was captured at Annick. From that day all went well. Geoffrey, the king's natural son, had reconquered Lincolnshire— and the sheriffs and justices were boldly fighting in the Midlands. By August the king was able to return to Normandy and drive the French forces from the siege of Rouen. Louis was ready to make peace, and Henry agreed to make some provision for his elder sons. He showed no personal bitterness. He spared his rebellious vassals but took possession of their castles. He did not want their estates. He wanted only to deprive them of the power to defy the royal authority. In this he succeeded, for the people learned to look for safety to a strong king who could hold the barons in awe. The war of 1173 and 1174 was really the last fight that the barons made clearly and definitely for their feudal independence. It was a war of principle and of politics rather than a personal strife. The people, on the whole, in spite of the discontent by which the barons had looked to profit, stood by the crown. All the English and Norman bishops, except the great Hugh de Puisset, Bishop of Durham, and the treacherous Arnulf of Lisieux, who hoped to profit by the success of the rebellion, but did not declare themselves in its favor, adhered to the king, and Henry, with his indomitable will and extraordinary energy, surrounded by a ring of able ministers and barons who had risen to power as officers of Henry I, was more than a match for his ill-assorted opponents. The danger was great for a time, but the coalition had no real leader. The attack was directed against the strong and systematized administration and the government conquered. The result of this war enabled the king to press his reforms still more closely upon the nation. In 1176 he issued the Assize of Northampton, a more stringent reenactment of the Assize of Clarendon, by which the punishments for criminals and accused persons for whose character no surety could be found were rendered more severe. He also instituted Assizes at which questions of ecclesiastical patronage, dispossession, and disputed succession were to be decided by a jury of neighbors. Assizes of Darren presentment, Novel de season mort d'Ancester. In the same year he took into his own hands all the castles in England and Normandy, and endeavored to extend the policy to his other possessions. The strongholds of the chief rebels were dismantled, but the estates were restored to their owners in spite of their treason. Henry placed his own castellans in the castles, and gave charge to the itinerant justices to inspect them in their circuits. In 1178 he appointed a bench of 5 judges to hear appeals with resort in the last case to himself in full council. In 1179 his faithful justiciar Richard de Lucy who had served him for 25 years retired to a monastery and the king altered the circuits and appointed Ranulf of Glanville to the vacant post. In 1181 he gave the chancellorship to his natural son Geoffrey who had so faithfully served him in the war and also caused him to be chosen bishop of Lincoln. In the same year the king issued the assize of arms, by which he gave explicit directions for the arming of all the freeholders, thus reviving and strengthening the national militia which had done such good service in his reign. Townfolk as well as yeomen he compelled to provide themselves with arms, and the liability of each man was to be estimated by juries. In 1183 he crushed another rebellion of his faithless sons. The younger Henry, again jealous of his brothers, made open war upon Richard and Geoffrey. The old king feared that the revolt would spread, and imprisoned the chief barons who had previously revolted. Then he endeavored to mediate between his sons, who were constantly taking new positions of hostility to each other and to him. The trouble ended for the time with the death of the young Henry in June. After this, the king gave no such great power to his sons. He was able again to turn to England, and in 1184 he issued a new forest law, the Assize of Woodstock, which greatly increased the burden he had already laid upon the freeholders. By this act, every free tenant who lived in a forest shire was compelled to attend the forest courts as well as those of the county. The forest jurisdiction was organized on a system parallel to that of the ordinary local courts, and the forest law was constantly made more severe as the forest area was continually encroaching upon the baron's lands. The king was determined that there at least he would act entirely without control, and it is in his forest customs alone that Henry appears in the light of an arbitrary despot he was soon recalled to his foreign dominions a new danger was arising his sons still continued to quarrel john now entering into the struggles but behind them was a more formidable opponent philip augustus the astute and warlike king of the french who had succeeded his feeble father louis the 7th in 1180 in his youth Henry had wisely advised him and aided him when he seemed near to destruction from his mighty vassals. But Philip had one fixed aim to make his kingly power supreme over all the lands between the Channel and the Pyrenees, and no scruple stood in his way. He aided, in open or in secret, every insurrection against Henry, and himself constantly levied avowed or underhand war on him. In 1186, Geoffrey of Brittany rebelled, but soon after he died, and peace was for a time patched up by the news of the capture of Jerusalem by the infidels, October 3, 1188. Letters imploring aid were sent by the popes and by the military orders of the temple and hospital, and the kings were shamed into a peace by the appeal of their fellow Christians in the East. Both Henry and Philip took the cross, and Richard, with more genuine intention, vowed to rescue the holy city from Saladin. A great council held at Gettington decreed that all men should give a tenth of their goods for the crusade. This was the first time that personal property, or movables, was taxed. Baldwin, Archbishop of Canterbury, made a special visit to Wales, preaching in the most remote valleys the obligation of the Holy War, and at the same time exercising his authority as Metropolitan over the Welsh Church. Before the expedition could start, war broke out again. Richard quarreled with the Count of Toulouse, and Philip invaded the territory of Henry's vassals. Henry in vain tried to make peace. Before long, both combatants turned on him. He had long kept Philip's sister Alice, who had been pledged in marriage to Richard, and he would not allow the marriage to be performed. Philip saw that his enemy was growing weaker. The barons on his foreign lands were gradually deserting him, and his own health was breaking down. In January 1189, Philip and Richard invaded his territory and carried all before them. Henry still held out and obstinately refused the terms they offered. Gradually the foes closed round him. Revolts broke out on every side. The king was surprised in Le Mans, the city of his birth, where he had often dwelt, and with great difficulty escaped from the burning town. He fled toward Normandy, but turned back again to Angers and then to Chinon. At last he agreed to treat— He was deserted by all his barons. Even John, the youngest and best loved of his children, went over to his foes. Only his natural son, Geoffrey the Chancellor, stood by him. On July 4, 1189, he met Philip and Richard on the plain of Colombieres, near Tours. He was utterly broken down. He agreed to recognize Richard as his heir and to give him his promised bride, to pay a large sum to Philip, and to leave Lemont and Tours as pledges in their hands. He could scarcely sit upon his horse, yet his fierce spirit refused to show any sign of weakness before those who had wronged and vanquished him. He was carried back to Chinon when he had seen the list of rebels whom he had promised to forgive, and broken hearted at his favourite son's desertion he gave up all struggle for life. Only Geoffrey the Chancellor stood by him and heard his bitter moan, Shame, shame on a conquered king. On July 6, 1189, he died. He was buried at Fontevraud, where his tomb still stands in the cloister of the nunnery that he founded. It was a pitiful end to the life of a great king. Even his wise acts had raised up bitter enemies who fell on him in his weakness, and his own bad life had robbed him of many who might have been his friends. He depended always on his own unaided powers, and when those failed, he could but fall and die. Yet men knew even then that they had lost the greatest of European monarchs. Foreigner though he was, and short the time he had spent on English soil, he had done more for England than any of her kings had ever done before. He had built up a firm central administration through which order and justice, tardy it might be and rough, but still far beyond what the land had previously enjoyed, were spread over the most distant shires. He had built up a curia, King's Court, in which the great officers of state and the barons whom he trusted advised him. He had made firm and definite the system of the exchequer, the great financial center, where his clerks received the dues from the sheriffs and managed all the business which sprang from the measures which so greatly increased the king's revenue and the work of his financial agents in all this as a lawgiver a financier a diplomatist a statesman he was assisted by trained men some lay but mostly clerics whom he had chosen and tested and through whom the administration he had so skillfully designed worked smoothly and sharply as he willed. In spite of his vast possessions and the constant call of foreign war and rebellion, he was known in England as few kings had been before his day. He traveled everywhere. He was at St. David's, at Canterbury, at Winchester, in the north and on the southern coast, and those who had to seek him for business toiled after him painfully and often in vain. Feared though he was, yet men bold like himself, whatever their rank, came to trust him and know that they could find justice at his hands. Round him he gathered able men, wise clerks, lawyers, scholars, statesmen, whose fame spread over Europe. The influence of such a king was felt far beyond his own court, the monasteries again began to take up the work of scholars, and to revive the art of historical writing which had suffered under the anarchy of Stephen. There grew up, too, in some of the towns, great schools like those abroad, and Oxford began to rival Paris and Bologna. Thither even under Stephen came great teachers like Robert Pullen and Vacarius, and Gerald of Berry found there the most famous and learned of English clerks. He took thither his book on the topography of Ireland, and read it for three days before different audiences. On the first day he received and entertained at his lodgings all the poor of the town, on the next day all the doctors of the different faculties, and such of their pupils as were of fame and note, on the third day the rest of the scholars, all the knights, townsmen, and many burgesses. Thus through the patronage of the king and the influence of his international relations on the church and the scholars of his day there was growing up in England a real interest in literature. But Henry's courtiers, scholars though many of them were, were first of all men of practical ability, and men who could work hard in the task of ruling a great empire. His justices were men who could shine in many fields. There were historians such as Roger of Haviden and Richard Fitzneal, diplomatists such as John of Oxford, as well as great legists like Ranulf of Glanville while Gerald of Berry, of whom we have spoken above, and Walter Mapp, Archdeacon of Oxford, were men who could have made their mark in literature in any age. Besides these, there were many great scholars such as John of Salisbury, separated for a time from the king by the Becket quarrel, but afterwards entering again into his friendship. John of Salisbury, who became Bishop of Chartres, was the most learned and able writer of the time. But the great English chroniclers, Rafe of Disset, Gervase of Canterbury, William of Newburgh, and others, were also men who had wide knowledge and real literary power. The court of Henry II was in fact a learned court, and the king was always surrounded by men of power and reputation. It is no wonder, then, that the great king was renowned throughout Europe. His continental position brought him into relation with the great powers, and he was soon recognized as the flower of the princes of the world. With the great emperor Frederick I he was constantly negotiating, and a marriage was planned for Richard with one of his daughters. He was also brought into close connection with German affairs by the marriage of his daughter Matilda with Henry the Lion, Duke of Saxony, and heir of the enormous possessions of the Welfs. When his son in law was driven from Germany, he took refuge in England, and at last, by Henry's mediation, was restored to some of his lands. With all the Spanish kingdoms, Henry was at one time or other connected. Aragon aided him in his Toulouse war. His daughter, Eleanor, married a Castilian king, and the kings of Navarre and Castile submitted their disputes to his arbitration. The Pope listened to his words with respect and did his utmost to keep in his good graces the italian cities and the princes who held the passes of the alps were in league with him the norman kingdom of sicily was his ally from its court he took his clever financier thomas brown to whom he gave a special seat in his exchequer an englishman also held office in sicily william the good the sicilian king married henry's daughter joanna and when he died left him the Sicilian crown. The Scandinavian monarchs sought his alliance, and the little counts of the French borders gladly owned his way. Last and greatest honor of all, in 1185, Heraclius, the patriarch of Jerusalem, with the master of the hospital, brought him the keys of the holy city, of the Tower of David, and of the Holy Sepulchre. He alone of European monarchs seemed great enough to revive the crusading kingdom and stem the torrent of barbarian attack. It was a great moment, for the crown of Jerusalem seemed to the men of those days almost an unearthly gift. Henry refused it. He thought it may be quite as much of his people as himself, but to the chroniclers of the time it seemed as if he had made the great refusal and his misfortunes closed around him from that hour. After four years of strife and disaster, he passed away, leaving behind him a name which will ever stand high among the makers of English greatness. End of chapter 2